0: The sports world has been greening itself for most of the century, but despite these efforts, most fans have no idea. That changes now. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. Hosted by Lou Blaustein, Green Sports Pod highlights the successes, challenges, and opportunities to green the games we love to watch and play, and give you the chance to hear from the athletes who are taking positive environmental actions. Learn more and subscribe to the show today at greensportsblog.com.
1: Welcome to Green Sports Pod. I'm your host, Lou Blaustein. And today we are joined by one of the world's greatest ultramarathoners and also one of the world's leading climate advocates among athletes. And that is Damien Hall, eco-athletes champion, ultramarathoner, author, and much more. Damien Welcome to Green Sports Pod. Yikes! Uh, Thank you, Lou. Thanks for having me on. It is my pleasure. So let's get right into it. First, I think our listeners are going to say, "A, what is an ultramarathoner?" And "B, once you tell them what it is, why would anyone in their right mind want to do it?"
2: I think that's when I first heard of what an ultramarathon was. It must be eleven years ago, roughly. It's kind of any race or challenge that's above the marathon distance. So really, they start at about 50 kilometers or 30 miles, but they go right up to um, 100 mile races are quite popular, especially in the in the US, actually. And then they go right up to, I just did one that was about 220 miles, but they go up way beyond that, actually sort of six day races. And there's even one that's 2000 miles. That isn't, not many people do that one, but it can be any distance above. So it really means a lot of different styles of racing. You can occasionally be on the road or track, but usually they're on trails in, in the hills and in the mountains, and they're the ones I prefer, certainly. And why would anyone do them? Why? <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, it was a, my first marathon, and then, and then you're sort of about a bit curious about what's next and could you go further? And then around that time, the idea of an ultra marathon was sort of put in my mind, and it was just curious. Could you go further? And over the next year or two, yeah, I did sort of my first ultra marathon, then my first 100 kilometers, then my first 100 miles, then I was doing 268 miles on the spine race. It's this fascinating journey of sort of, can I go a bit further? And and you learn that a lot of it is in the mind rather than the body. Of course, you need to train a certain amount, but you so much of it is in your head and, and whether you want to carry on. What mental strength do you have there? What reasons, what motivation do you have to keep going? It doesn't have to be as painful as it sounds. It honestly, often isn't, but it's hugely rewarding. And you get moments, you get almost this, yeah, this emotional roller coaster wrapped into a sort of maybe 24 hours or something. You just have these pretty safe adventures in beautiful places, really. And certainly achieving a new distance for the first time is really gratifying and really kind of addictive as well. Yeah, I don't know if I've sold it to you, but it's brilliant, honest. You've sold it to me for you, not for me. Because... You and I
1: diverged when you said, well, you know, after I completed my first marathon, I wanted to see what it would be like to do more. And I'm thinking, if I completed my first marathon, I would say, oh my gosh, how can I do less?
2: I thought that would maybe be the case for me, and I think a lot of people, but you get this huge high after a first marathon, or even a first half marathon actually, or even a first 10K or 5K for some people. You almost always, I think always for me, you get this high that lasts for days. And then it starts to go. And, and the, the only way to get it back is to almost chase, you know, chase it again by signing up for something else. And for me, it was going further and further. That was really interesting. But honestly, yeah, I mean, the sport is booming. Running itself is booming. And that's partly why, because physically it gives us great, whether it's endorphins or serotonin, or I'm not exactly sure the chemical, the sort of hormone involved, but it gives us great feelings as well as occasionally painful feelings, I suppose.
1: And also I picked up on for you, being out in nature is a key part of it and i imagine actually doing trail running is easier on your knees and backs and hips than let's say if you were running on paved roads for 268 miles that might be a bit of a trick but talk about being in nature
2: you're totally right when i did my first ultra marathon it was a longer distance and more time on time on feet I think I'm being fair in saying it was actually less painful than the road marathon which is yeah tarmac is or asphalt or or whatever roads are made of in the US That's really painful it's the worst it's the harshest terrain to run on um so actually running up and down mountains sounds more challenging more grueling but in some ways it isn't because your body changes you know the different angle of the terrain whether you're going up or down or flat or undulating that's li- that's using different parts of your body and, and letting other bits rest and then You've got the whole thing of, wow, incredible views a lot of the time. Uh, and yes, yeah, scientists, have numerous studies have shown, I think it's called the biophilia effect, where innately we we need to be in nature. There's something inside us. We, you know, we used to live in the trees. We need to be in nature for our mental health. So it's a nature fix for me as well, both the training and the racing. And yeah, I, I tend to sign up for the races that are in the most spectacular places. Like just two weeks ago, I was in Northern Italy in the, in the Italian Alps, Aosta Valley, which was just beautiful. And nothing quite beats... Yeah running through the night can be tough when it gets dark and you can't see much but sunrise every time sunrise has come around it's sort of lifted me and, and any other runner I've spoken to actually it's just a brilliant moment sunrise in the mountains is yeah I mean it's one of the greatest things you can do in in life I think
1: And so you do the ultra marathons and you're also at the top of the class so because I'm hearing this kind of almost zen like approach or feeling of being out in nature etc Yet there must also be this competitive drive to want to win. How do those things juxtapose with each other?
2: It's curious, isn't it? Because you could say if you just love being in nature, we'll just go for a long hike uh, or do some mountaineering or something. And actually, that is what I used to do. I used to play football or soccer for my sort of competitive. And then at weekends or, or if I had a spare week, I'd been lucky to travel quite a bit around the world as well when I was younger. And I've done a lot of the, the famous hikes like the Inca Trail and the Everest Base Camp Trek. Yeah, I used to do those as a un- totally uncompetitive element. of. So I almost had these two different things, a sporty competitive thing, and then this, this sort of wandering in nature. When I discovered ultra marathon running, that it was almost a combination of the two. Yeah, I was just really intrigued by it. So I suppose I love being in nature. I love going up and down lumps. But for me, yeah, there is something exciting about trying to register a certain time on a route or competing against other people. I don't think I have to do that every time. But that is fun to do sometimes. I don't fully understand why I need to do both. And and I've asked other athletes this as well. I find, so say, for example, the race I just did, Tour de Gion, I wanted two things from it. I suppose I wanted my best possible performance, my athletic performance, the best I could do. And then also just wanted an adventure. And, and if I didn't get the athletic performance, if I still had an adventure, that was still fine, I think. So it's a bit of both. It's a bit of a contradiction. Yeah, it's available to people that can do it however they like. Now let's talk about, you
1: mentioned earlier the Spine Race, which is 268 miles going straight north, I believe, from the south center of England through the heart or the spine, I guess, the main British mainland UK. Talk about that race and how it went for you in 23 going that long distance.
2: Yeah, I've had quite a long relationship with this race. So it's been going, must be 11 years now, I think. And when I first heard of it, I was just getting into the sport and it was just launching. And I just thought it was absurd because I'd actually hiked. It goes along the Pennine Way, which is our oldest national trail. And it's actually kind of based on the Appalachian Trail that you have over there. It's much shorter, of course, but England's much smaller than, than the United States. But it is based on the idea of having a great journey, a great trail you can follow as a hiker or a runner or a runner. The race launched in, twenty twenty twelve. And I followed it avidly on social media and just thought it was nuts, you know, that it so we do it in winter here, so it's mostly dark and yeah, I mean we don't get tons of snow necessarily, but it, it can be wet and cold and miserable. And then yeah, I followed it the next year as well, just full of awe of and just full of curiosity in my mind of what must that feel like? And could I do it? You know, is it possible for me to do it? I had no idea. So I was there on the third year. It was only my fifth race actually, and I was on the yeah, I was on the start line, full of naivety, but full of wonder of what's this going to be like. Now, I'm almost contradicting myself already because I was talking about the wonderful views in nature. And the, most of this race is in the dark, really, because it's winter. It's probably dark from half three to four in the afternoon through to about half seven the next morning. So it's kind of yeah, two thirds of the dark. You don't really see much. Although I must say it could be out in the night in, in mountains and hills. And if there are stars or, or mist, it can still be quite special. But yeah, I just had this mind blowing time. It exceeded, you know, I exceeded my own expectations of what I could do. And, and it was an incredible, It was a great community feel to it as well. It does seem, because of the madness of the race, it does seem to draw lots of people to it, both people who are volunteering on the race, but just strangers turn up and cheer you on in the middle of nowhere or, or give you some snacks. And you almost feel they've invested in you. They've come out to give you some sweets or a cup of tea. The least you could do is sort of keep going and keep going. So I've ended up doing that one. One year, I didn't make it to the end, but i I honestly can't remember. Is it four times? Four starts, three finishes. And yeah, this year, this year I was finally, yeah, first place, which was pretty exciting. And they had probably the best weather I've had this year in that it was sort of cold enough to have snow on a lot of the course. What was it like to win it?
1: And how long does it take to run 268 miles? Actually, I would answer that one first and then the winning part second.
2: When I finished it, it was a men's course record, although it's not as quick as the women's course record set by Jasmine Paris in 2019. It was about 80, it's just over 80 hours. So that ends up being, we start on Sunday morning and you finish kind of Wednesday night and you go, you probably sleep twice in that spell and probably less than two hours maximum really overall. If you're trying to win, if you're trying to be competitive, so you learn about, I suppose, power naps. There are some checkpoints on the route where you 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 can get to a bed, you, you can get some food, you can swap a bit of kit. There aren't very many, actually. There's only five real ones where you can really do that. But yeah, it takes kind of half a week. In some ways, you get to a steep uphill or a boggy section. You, you're probably walking it rather than running it. But the secret is, you, yeah, keep going. Be efficient. Keep going. Keep eating. And what was it like to win it? I mean, yeah, it was very exciting. There was quite a close duel towards the end with me and a friend. Actually, Jack Scott. He's a much younger runner, young, young enough to be my son. And so that was quite exciting for people to watch the trackers. And yeah, getting getting to the wall, there's a sort of wall right at the end of the, on the pub, the traditional finish point. Yeah, a real special moment. And there were sort of, yeah, 20 or 30 people waiting there with all with their smartphones, waiting in the dark and the cold for us, which felt lovely. Yeah, it was it was a great feeling. I, it's difficult to describe, really. Uh, and I, I have sympathy for footballers now when people say, oh, how does it feel? And they just say, yeah, oh, I feel like it, it is quite hard. It, it was something of a relief because the previous year I'd Retired injured when I'd been leading the race by four hours. I had an injury. I had to retire. So it was very frustrating. I had that frustration for a year. So it was very nice. I guess a feeling of redemption, to be honest, to, to come back and do it properly. Well, congratulations. That is a great
1: redemption story. And that is one of the things we love in sports. Climate comeback. Yes. Great segue there. Now, we didn't practice that, folks. That was just very organic great segue talk about your interest in climate and where that started and we'll go from there
2: probably started thinking seriously about i suppose my role as an athlete and how bad was is running in about 2019 when over here we had a group called extinction rebellion who were doing these amazing protests in london and they were quite they really caught I think the police and, and people off guard and, and were able to sort of block bridges and block roads. They had a massive pink boat in the middle of sort of London, stopping all the traffic. But they were all very... Lots of people were in fancy dress and well dressed up and all the You could tell lots and lots of time and effort had gone into the big banners and choreographed sort of costumes and singing. And it really caught my attention of of, wow, these people think this stuff is much more serious than the, most of the media is saying, much more urgent. So I was intrigued, I followed up with their website, I went to some meetings, I guess I learned, educated myself on how urgent this stuff is, which isn't really hard, it's in, we could get into the media in a minute, but like a lot of the newspapers over here, they're owned by right-wing sort of billionaire press barons who are, it's not in their interest necessarily to tell people how urgent the situation is, whereas the BBC does a fairly good job most of the time, you know, the BBC should be impartial. If you go on their website, it's got- The Guardian does a good job, I think. Yes, and that is my go-to newspaper, And they're not owned by anyone, you know, so they can say how it is. So yeah, the Guardian and the BBC, between them, you can get a good picture. I was interested in, yeah, how bad, and then you, I guess I started to learn our running kit. That's part of the problem. And you're like, oh, okay, shoes, the brands are encouraging us to throw our our shoes away after 300 miles because the shoe might injure us, and of course, they want you to buy a new pair. And of course, that's loads of waste and there's the emissions to make them in the first place. And I suppose the thing I hadn't really considered much, really, it sounds so naive now, but it's a few years ago, but yeah, my travel, you know, as, as an athlete, I was I was probably flying three times a year to races without really thinking much about it. And I mean, that's what we were all doing. So I guess I was trying to think, oh, I am kind of part of the problem. What can I do? What, what are the aspects of running that, that are worse or could be better? And I guess I tried to do this fairly publicly on social media of discovering different things and being open and being transparent. It didn't get everything right. And then and then I'd written one book for publisher Vertebrate Publishing, just about my adventures really in ultra running and and they really encouraged me to do something on this. So I did a book came out about a year ago now called We Can't Run Away from This and that made I really had to sit down and research the sportswear industry, I guess our fueling as well. And hopefully most people know, yeah, I suppose meat and dairy has a, a far bigger impact on the planet than than any plants. So, and then just, yeah, consumption. I mean, the the overconsumption crisis is really what underpins most of this. Yeah, so I just have to really look into it for this book. Where can you buy the book? For those who want to buy
1: the book, and it's called We Can't Run Away From This, from Vertebrate Publishing. Is that available online?
2: Yeah, I'm pretty sure it would be on Amazon, but it's better if people could buy it. I mean, thanks in advance to anyone who's interested, but yeah, it's better if you buy it from the publisher, Vertebrate Publishing. I think you can just go to their website. Yeah, if you just Google Vertebrate Publishing, well, not Google. What What are the? Hold on, there's a better search engine. Here we are. What's the one I use? Ecosia. They plant trees for E C O S I A. They plant trees for uh, every time you use the um use their page. By the way, it's so better better than Google. Yeah, if anyone wants to buy that book, then then yeah, huge amount of gratitude. But it, yeah, it's mostly quite depressing. Uh, hopefully, towards the end, it gets more optimistic. What I was able to do is look at. Well, hold on on who is doing good, actually, in the running industry, whether it's brands or events or individuals, you know, individual runners. And I've got some very inspiring friends or made friends through this process of people who are really doing some amazing things, often in the United States as well as as Europe. I would say the running community,
1: you know, just putting my eco-athletes hat on, we have 130 eco-athletes champions, more than that now. I would say running, distance running, middle distance running, all the way to ultra, in the case of Damien, has great representation and great enthusiasm. And and even people who are not eco-athletes champions, like uh, Tina Muir, I don't know if you know. Yeah, yeah, I know Tina, yeah. Really advocating for climate action and climate solutions through this almost universal pursuit, which is running.
2: It's interesting, you would probably have a better perspective on, on that than me, because I'm so sort of in the running world or the trail running world, it's hard to sort of stand back out. But So it's interesting to hear that. I definitely feel triathlon seems a little bit behind, for example. And But what's interesting over here, actually, you'll know our friends at uh, Champions for Earth, they're mostly, they were sort of ahead of, well, ahead of me anyway, and they're all water sports people. So that's quite in- interesting. I'm actually catching up with them soon. I'm going to ask, was it noticing pollution in the water or... or the threat to waterways, I'm not sure. So it's quite interesting. And I think it's trail running seems to be ahead of, say, road running. There's a lot of overlap. I mean, most of us do both. But I think that's because we spend a lot more time in nature and we're more, for, for some reason, well, the reason is, but I think that, that we're more aware of the threat. We're more concerned about these places. Even things like littering, we're more upset. If you see litter, for example, up a Mountain, it does stand out more than if you sit on a road in the middle of a city, probably you don't bat an eyelid, really. So I feel like in Britain and America, certainly, and, and Spain and France as well, I feel like some progress has been made, some groups are getting together, some, yeah, some things are happening. And yeah, a year and a half ago, we, me and several friends founded the Green Runners. We now have a thousand people around the world.
1: And what does the Green Runners do and advocate for?
2: Well, that was an element of we're still asking ourselves you know, exactly what we should do I think we found a bit of a good role lately. I'll get onto that in a second. I mean, when we launched, we sort of thought we've got four pillars, so anyone can join us. They just have to pledge to improve on one of those four pillars. We don't want to put anyone offside who might, lots of people enjoy eating meat. We don't want to say, oh, you can't join because you eat beef. We don't want to say you can't join because you fly for whatever reasons. So we're definitely very inclusive. We want all the people. So it's up to people how you kit up, how you travel, how you eat, and how you speak up. So it's only up to people to make a pledge on to improve on one of those as a minimum. So yeah, so we didn't want to. So anyone's welcome. There's no barriers there. For me, the fourth pillar is the most important one by far, how you speak up. So individual, I mean, this will be something you'll debate endlessly, I'm sure, but individual actions and, and improvements, I think are worthwhile. But I don't think they're the most important thing. I mean, and personally, we. if you want, I, I turned vegan, I massively reduced flying and travel blah 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 but i think it's much more important to speak up to, to try and nudge for system change to, to join in protests you know to vote certain ways to join clubs like the green runners hopefully the eco-athletes etc to me that's going to have far more potential for significant improvements I, I think the classic example is so we've had a coal mine well we've got all these north sea gas licenses coming up but we've had a coal mine open up in the lake district that is far worse than i don't know if someone stays in at home and make sure they wash all their plastic pots up for recycling. I mean, that's great, but if you obsess over getting your recycling done and someone opens up a coal mine down the road, yeah, I mean, we've sort of, we've concentrated on the mice and and missed the elephant. So that's the thing to think about.
1: I would say I agree with you to a point, and this is where you all, athletes, come in. So yes, I, first of all, talking about it to me is numero uno, and voting, both with your ballots, with your dollars or pounds as to what you buy or don't buy, I think also is hugely important. And I agree on a certain level that, of course, an individual's behaviors, as green as you can make them, aren't going to make a whole bit of difference. I do think that's important for two reasons. One, it's an on-ramp to me, to more behaviors that an, an individual can take. That's one. Two, it depends who the individuals are. And this is where the athletes come in. Because the athletes, you all have, and it's you have a platform and the other ultra runners and other track or athletic stars do. Then there are athletes, we could be talking Messi or LeBron James or Coco Gauff, have many more zeros of followers than many. Imagine if those athletes, those with modest followings, moderate followings, and humongous followings, all can encourage their fans and followers to take individual actions. Now we're talking about millions, hundreds of millions, possibly billions of people. And that's when that adds up. Of course, those athletes need to encourage them to do that voting thing that we talked about, because then that gets you to the systemic change. But I see the power of athletes as this massive megaphone and you have, you have one.
2: Yes, no, you put that far better than than I did. I skipped over that a bit clumsily. I guess I was thinking more of sort of if you join the green runners, I wasn't thinking of, I suppose, elite runners necessarily, but I'm fascinated by, yeah, I try and set a really good example myself. One of the things I've really improved, I suppose, is traveling to races. So I used to, without even thinking, if I had a race in France or Italy, I'd just fly without really thinking and it's often cheaper unfortunately. Now I make a real effort to get trains and buses. I've only flown once in, in four years. Wait a minute, you could run to the race. All right, take the
1: channel, but then like, just run. You're already in France. Come on now. But I'm getting
2: very lazy with my older age. and But I think you've got, yeah, we've got an eco-athlete actually, Dakota Jones, who is getting quite famous in America for cycling, uh, cycling a long way to his ultra marathons. So he, yeah, huge credit to him. But yeah, I mean, there's a balance between sort of over-celebrating something as if it's changed the world but i I guess i'm trying to normalize the idea that actually especially traveling from the uk to europe it's not too hard to get trains and buses and so i've been doing that I've, i've massively cut down my flights to do that but you're totally right and it is a big frustration to me as i'm sure it is to you that i know elite sports people who you know who make actually quite good quite conscious choices but keep it private because I think, and we've discussed this actually, haven't we, offline before, that, yeah, probably because they're usually scared to be called a hypocrite or scared to lose following or scared to, because you do get some criticism. I mean, I've got used to that and it's actually very small. It's actually 80, 90% very supportive. But we tried to do something with the green runners recently. Well, we were, we were calling out our biggest race is called the, the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc, UTMB Mont Blanc, and they've got a high carbon headline sponsor now. Oh my goodness. That's not right. No, no, we were very upset about that. We got a petition going. Yeah, in just a few weeks, we got almost three thousand people signed it and got lots of media coverage. Got well, we got the race reaching out to us actually and, and wanting to have conversations with us. And, and yeah, I managed to get well, not me, but several elite, well-known runners signed a petition, which was brilliant. But quite a few didn't as well. And and they had message some messaged me privately and kind of said, "Look, I really support it, but I can't support it publicly." Yeah, I'm not being critical of those people, but it is such a shame that we're in an atmosphere, a climate where. Those people can't, well, they can't give their honest feelings uh, publicly, you know, they could have so much influence as well. And I think, yeah, I mean, this is exactly what you probably think about all day of how how can we get these people speaking out more. But yeah, we had some success with that. Maybe next year, because we're pretty sure they'll carry on with the sponsor, you know, so we'll make a big fuss again next year. We'll make a louder, a louder noise about it. Yeah, it might be that next time around they're on board. Let's see. I
1: think it's not an easy one. We deal with it with eco athletes and I'm sure and you're dealing with it with green runners and other athletes' groups, I'm sure champions for Earth and other ones have the same issue. However, I actually think, and this isn't gonna like the person you said who said, I can't do it publicly, you're not gonna flip him or her right away. However, I would say, and this is what we say to athletes sometimes who have this hesitation that What you're doing is really hard. What you're afraid of doing is not as hard as what you do. Second, there are people who've stepped out on other issues and who face criticism, no question about it, but they end up in large part with maybe one notable exception, and I won't be coy in a second, being in a better place. Like Billie Jean King stepped out on women's equal pay for women, and then later on, LGBTQ rights. Now, you might say, oh, well, Billie Jean King is Billie Jean King. Well, back in the 70s and the 60s when she was fighting for this, they were like nowhere. And she ended up becoming an icon. Muhammad Ali, et cetera, et cetera. The one example where it's been a problem is in the U.S. sports world is Colin Kaepernick, the football player, American football player who protested police violence against African-Americans and he was blackballed. But even he has achieved an iconic stature in in many eyes. So all I'm saying is, like when we have conversations, hey, you're gonna take incoming no matter what. The world is with us on this more than it's against. And we say at EcoAthletes, we have your back. So hopefully that will get some people and in your organization and others to just take another step.
2: I think people probably have to ask themselves, I mean, ultimately, we're, we're almost at a point where it's like, do you want to be seen as having been on the right side of history? I'm so sure that, well, I'm not sure that every single small action I do is totally the right thing, but I'm totally sure I'm on the right side of history, as I'm sure you are. Like, it's just so clear. I do really feel for sports people that may have to, for example, I mean, the classic thing is having to fly or at least flying for the international sport. And they, they really are caught in the middle of all of this. It's often not their fault
1: Plus, the people who criticize them are often the same people who are demanding that they show up on their TV screen or on their phone or on their computer so they can watch them and go, yay, or boo. They are criticizing the people they demand entertain
2: them. I mean, I only get a small amount of criticism, but it's sort of like, It's quite funny, really. I've been, well, not criticized, but asked, well, are you denying by not, by doing less races abroad and in America and stuff, are you not denying us some pleasure from us following you, but you're not going to do this race anymore? And then other people will be, yeah. And then I did take one flight, one flight in four years. I took it this year. And of course, that gets ham stuff back in my face whenever, (laughs) whenever there's an option, even though I've massively improved from kind of where I was. I don't mind too much. Yeah, I feel, I feel sure of what I'm doing. And like I say, I might not make every minor decision perfectly, but I feel sure of, of being on the right side of history. And that, may, yeah, means I sleep. I sleep all right at night. I only really sleep if I not feel I'm not doing enough. Could we be doing more to stop this or that?
1: Unless you're sleeping one hour on a 268-mile race, then you're not sleeping that great. Or you may have a really good hour, and that's it. Look, I, I believe in, we have to embrace, and this is something that Dr. Maddie or told me she's one of the leading lights in the academic side of the sustainable sports world. We have to embrace being imperfect advocates. No one's perfect in this. And we have the right to advocate for better options and choices that will get us where we need to go. That systemic change you talked about.
2: Yeah, totally. And we we use that phrase in the green run as well. We sort of say imperfect activism. It's progress, not perfection. Because no one can be perfect. Everyone will have some form of footprint, pun pun, not intended. So if we all stay quiet because we have a footprint, nothing will happen. And that's terrible. That's a frightening idea that so many people are staying quiet because they might get in a car sometimes. They might occasionally fly. Oh, I better not. I better not get on that side of the debate. And that is a shame. And that looks like apathy and apathy can look like not necessarily denial, but, but yeah.
1: Apathy is denial. I believe it is. I believe it's like Looking the other way allows the forces that you are looking away from to take power or to get their way. And so apathy is a very dangerous thing.
2: Yes, I've forgotten who the quote comes from, but there's a great quote about sort of, you know, the biggest danger is is the belief that someone else will sort everything out. And I think we've got to that stage where we can see, yeah, the, the people that we've entrusted I guess I'm talking governments here and, and corporations, the people we've entrusted to make the moves to, to sort this out just aren't doing it. And, th- and that's just so clear now. And that's hugely frustrating. That is my number one mission, to be honest. As a parent, I've got two young children. I really believe that their generation and the generation afterwards are going to look back and say, what about we, our, our generation now? We, knew, we know what's going on. We know what needs to be done to fix it. And it's not happening. And, and they're going to be, what are they going to think of us? They're going to retrospectively really hate us, I think, and be pretty angry. And understandably, so it's more, can I turn around to my kids and say, well, I really tried. I tried to do everything I could. And, and yeah, that, that's what motivates me in this.
1: And that can be a great example to them to get them to say, look, things are bad, but we can make a difference to make them either less bad or better. Because I actually think the flip of that is that of what you're saying is that, Let's say the Gen Zs, who are just in university now and coming into their into early adulthood, Gen Alpha, I guess, is what follows them where your kids are. like those generations, thanks to us, have this huge problem on their hands. They also have this huge opportunity. I mean, they are the generation that it's a challenge, no question about it, but you run two hundred sixty eight miles. There are ways that these young people have the chance to really make a positive difference. And how cool would that be? And I think it is. You're setting the example that for your own kids and the people in your world, th- those young folks, that they can say, hey, look, I can do this too. So thank you for doing that, Damien.
2: Thank you for joining us today on Green Sports Pod. Thank you, but but also thank you for, you know, thank you for providing a platform that is is a great comfort, I think, to sports people you do a great job of informing and supporting us and yeah, you help make it sort of okay for sports people to speak out, but it can be daunting. It can feel a bit lonely and and, yeah, you will get criticism and and, yeah, not everyone wants to do those things. So yes, thank you for all your help in that regard. My pleasure. And uh, we will be talking soon. I'm
1: sure also when the reverse fixture of Arsenal at Tottenham happens sometime in 2024, we will discuss that inside football, soccer stuff there, folks. Damien, thank you so much for being on, on the pod and for what you're doing with Green Runners, with the book, We Can't Run Away From This by Vertebrate Publishing, and for your kids and their generational cohorts. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening to Green Sports Pod. We will be back in the not too distant future with another conversation about the intersection of green and sports.
0: You've been listening to Green Sports Pod, hosted by Lou Blaustein. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And head on over to greensportsblog.com, the source for news and commentary at the intersection of green and sports. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Green Sports Pod.